Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Toby, welcome. Hey, Matt. Hi, everyone. So, election has just gone by, our federal election in Australia. Thoughts, feelings? It's an interesting one. I was just talking with our guest, Kelly O'Shaughnessy, before we were on air, and I was saying I was in the UK when the Blair Labour government got elected, and even people who weren't that political, even people who were not Labour supporters, there was a sense of excitement that was palpable in the country, just this sense of change. And it feels very muted here, even among people who are Labour supporters or more progressive. It just feels a bit quiet. And Kelly made the very good point that both major parties actually lost votes. While on the one hand, it's been a great election for progressives uh, and progressive politics, there's not that same kind of galvanizing, we know where we're going and it's all exciting. It's a little bit more like, hey, look, we were a bit unhappy. There needs to be a correction. We're going to do some stuff around trying to clean up politics a bit and do better on climate change. But again, there's not that same galvanizing excitement. So my reflections are that Australia massively needed a change, regardless of which side of politics you're on, we were not in the right place. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the longer term implications of the independence, you know, who are called the Teals, some of them like being referred to as Teals, some don't. But one of the reasons that moniker kind of got picked up is they're kind of part blue on the economic side and kind of green on the environmental side. And it'll be really, really interesting to see how all that plays out. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that. What actually gives me excitement is that it wasn't a landslide to Labour, although that, you know, that's, I'm red, I guess. Um, what, what's red and green combined? What does that make? Kind of murky brown. Yeah, so I, I, I won't go there. But <laughs> um, but what makes me excited is that we've, we've changed the government with a, with a majority, which means things can get done, but it's, it's on the edge and Labor Party will need to look at themselves here and say, yes, we went the small target Yes, we went with didn't want to shake the boat too much with people so scared with COVID and all the other changes and disruptions. But people did say, yes, we don't want what we had and we need change. We'll give you guys a go. You better do something with it. And I think Labor are taking that on board. And I, and I think that with the success of the Greens and the independents and just other changes around, the changes in narrative and discussion and the complete movement away from that Murdoch fear and hate sort of rhetoric that's going on, we have a real opportunity to press the reset button in Australia and actually go towards climate integrity, equality, and then some, yeah. and, um, yeah, make a big difference. And I think just building on what you just said, it was, for me personally, uh, and I'm sure many others, well, I know many others, absolutely uplifting to hear Anthony Albanese start his acceptance speech with an acknowledgement of country and just come out straight away saying and you know the uh, labor government that I now that I lead will commit fully to implementing the Uluru statement from the heart and that was incredible and for those listeners who aren't in Australia um, that is essentially at, at its simplest it's more complex than this but at its simplest 
uh, and most important, a commitment to putting uh, an indigenous or Aboriginal uh, voice uh, in the parliamentary decision-making uh, process. So, yeah, along with that constitutional recognition of something so so valued, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia have had such a shocking, I guess, treatment of by the government throughout our history, and finally just symbolic gestures of, of talking about it, of changing the flags behind, you know, um, where Anthony Albanese was speaking, just makes such a difference and that's exciting. Well, and what I loved about it was this was more than symbolic. Mm. So the, I, I really like the acknowledgement of country um, in that I, I think it is part of cult driving change. Uh, but the thing I actually like about it is people bring different things to it. So some people are really profound in their thinking of and how they express it. And Albanese's was sounding like it was going to be, you know, very kind of run-of-the-mill, you know, I'd like to pay, you know, uh, traditional custodians, elders past, present, emerging, and kind of very much matter of form. And then it was anything but. It wasn't just the flag or, yeah. or, or you know, a, a blandishment acknowledgement. It was boom. Yep. We're going to do something that matters, and that was really exciting. That's pretty pathetic for me. I think to to live in a country that has treated a group that has to be valued for rich history of caring for this continent for tens of thousands of years in a continuous manner, and then that being disrupted. So I'm so excited for all the the new politicians in par you know in Parliament that are uh, First Nations people and the change and impact they're going to have and the excitement about this from our community. So that's another key part, um, along with, you know, just areas of our of our society that have been left behind. Um, hopefully there's a bit of a, a light shone on that and people can feel a bit valued and, and vulnerable people can feel like a bit of certainty. And that's that's where we need to head because democracy requires people to trust and believe in in that system or else, you know, we could go somewhere very different. And I think democracy won in this election. The Labor Party did, but democracy won. Yeah, nicely put. Uh, I'll, I'll happily run with that. And I think we're going to try and uh, get some speakers on to discuss kind of ideas around democracy and the state of democracy, not just in Australia but elsewhere in future episodes. Great. Thanks, Toby. We may as well get straight to our guest. Um, I'll introduce Kelly O'Shaughnessy of the Australian Conservation Foundation right after this break. Chief Executive of the ACF, no less. Kelly O'Shaughnessy is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Conservation Foundation, Australia's national environmental organisation. With over 700,000 members, the ACF works to unite people across Australia to speak out for a world where forests, rivers, people and wildlife thrive. The ACF pushes for bold solutions to the pollution and extinction crises that are currently impacting Australia and the globe. They use evidence-based advocacy, courage, creativity and common sense to change our story for the better using people power to fix our broken systems. They are completely independent and funded by donations from community members. You can visit acf.org.au to find out more and get involved. Kelly has had a long and distinguished career advocating for the natural world, working in the business, government and not-for-profit sectors. She is an incredibly passionate, intelligent, dedicated and experienced leader, as you will find out in our conversation today. We discuss Kelly's early inspirations, the importance of values 
A love of nature is a great unifier, the need for groups and teams to affect change, the power of leadership, hope, optimism, and a moment of clarity. So now, without further delay, here is Callie O'Shaughnessy. Callie, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hello. It's great to have you. Uh, It's great to be here. I wanted to start off with a bit about your background, but I was reading a little bit about you today and found out that you're the, the daughter of a police officer and a teacher in, a, in a, a place that you described as a little bit rough and where, you know, vulnerable sections of society sort of congregated and, and were around in that area. And you talked about how you felt a real closeness to people and, and wanting to do more for people. And now you're in the Australian Conservation Foundation, which is more about nature, but obviously people are intertwined with that. There's an interconnection there. Can you talk about maybe a bit about your upbringing and what led you to the place that you are today? Yes. Well, I I grew up in a suburb of Geelong called Corio and just down the road was an oil refinery. It was in um, social housing that we grew up and, you know, blue-collar working mum and dad but great community uh, and a brilliant family and just not a lot of money, you know, didn't go on a lot of holidays or have much in the way of presents, you know, at Christmas time, but it uh, didn't matter, none of that mattered. And the thing that really shocked me one day, well, it was one of these moments of clarity, uh, we'll get right to it, shall we, Um, (laughs) is I remember... Someone coming around and knocking on the door, I think I was about 10 or so, and they asked my dad's help and he helped them. And what they had done is they'd committed a crime and they wanted to go to the police station to own up for that and asked my dad to go with them because he was the policeman of the family. And he said, yeah, mate, I'll take you. And he didn't judge him. And from memory, it wasn't a very good crime, not that you get good crimes, but um, Dad didn't judge him for what he had done. He decided he would help him do what he wants to do, which is to be better. And I just remember that and I thought, wow, how good would it be just to be good in the world and not um, judge people for where they've come from or how much it they're educated or how much money they earn or what the colour of their skin is, but just, you know, for them as a person and help them if they want to be helped. And so when I joined the environment movement, I wanted more people like me to feel like they could be part of a movement. So if you love nature, you're very welcome to come and join the ACF and it nothing else really matters. Uh, and who you vote for doesn't matter, how you have your cup of coffee in the morning doesn't matter and where you live doesn't matter. Uh, and I just feel like we want to make the love of nature and protection of nature something that is fundamental to being Australian. And I just said we want to make that. We don't have to make that because it's already true. It is fundamental to being Australian Uh, but advocacy and speaking up for nature is still something that only a small percentage of people do. And I just want folks to realise that you actually don't have to tie yourself to a tree to be an advocate. And if you do want to tie yourself to a tree, then good on you, you know. We need that as well. Um, There's lots of different ways to speaking up for the future. And uh, that's kind of what I learnt in that particular moment in time from my father. But within that, Kelly, I I guess that makes a lot of sense in terms of the advocacy and what you do, I guess what 
what I heard kind of in, in Matt's question was that sounds like a very social, social justice perhaps oriented thing and you've got a very environmental route. And so is there a difference where or, or was there at some point a decision that it was about the environment more than helping the guy get to the police station? <laughs> well... It, I, it wasn't till I came to Melbourne and went to uni that I fell in love with nature because I hadn't no money, so we didn't go bushwalking or on holidays much. But we did, uh, when I was a teenager, move out to the country and live on a property. Mm. And we lived in a caravan while mum and dad were building a house and teacher and policeman, not very good at building houses, so it took some time. <laughs> and we lived in this caravan for a few years. And um, I remember one year it was a drought and my pony, Cindy, uh, had nothing to eat because there was no grass in the paddock. And I just thought, wow, how reliant are we on nature and the things I love on nature, the people I love, the animals I love, that in one year of not raining means that we now have to cart water in for ourselves Mm -hmm. and for our uh, horses And I just thought, wow, we really should protect nature like our lives dependent on it. So it started with our dependency on nature and then I discovered this thing called money and went on holidays and went hiking and fell in love with nature and decided that I wanted to protect it. People aren't separate to nature but we're the ones doing the harm to nature and we're the the solutions to protecting it and so activating people. Um, linking back to the first part of the the question really, activating as many different people as we can around loving and protecting nature is fundamental to what I like to do. So for me I can't separate people and nature. Often people identify a passion, a love of something but then struggle to actually begin the journey to making a difference in that space or, or, you know, dedicating part of their lives, all their lives to it. What was your journey from having the passion to where you are now sort of academically and professionally? Mm. Well, I definitely remember a moment when I was about 16 I thought I was going to be a vet because, of course, living on the land, around livestock and horses, and I did my work experience and the vet, I was with the vet when they gave a, I think it was a cow, a pregnancy exam, and I don't know if you've seen how they do that, but it requires a very long glove, and I thought, hmm, <laughs> maybe I should be an environmentalist. I was weighing up between the two. <laughs> but I wanted to be the person who made things better. I didn't want to be the person who um, increased the division. And I was really inspired by that. So I guess that does go back to those early moments of clarity. So I just went into uni and studied science and from there worked in consultancy. But I remember the moment when, and it was always been about the environment my whole career, but I remember when I was standing uh, trying to figure out what to do next and I was talking to a CEO of one of the water authorities in, in Melbourne and we were talking and that's when I decided going into advocacy would be really good. One, because... In parts, I was a little bit frustrated by advocacy, speaking to the same people. And I wanted, as I said earlier, as many people as possible to feel welcome and to be part of advocacy. And so I decided rather than just being frustrated, I should actually get involved and do something about it. When I was a little kid, I don't know why, I knew I was not going to be a mum. I don't know how or why. But when I was a little kid, I knew that I was going to care about the environment and it just was something that 
grew and happened and lots of really smart people have a really strategic way of developing their careers. I don't necessarily think I've done it that way, but it has always grown from that uh, passion. Yeah, I think I have, um, not that I'm a model for anyone, but I have sometimes people ask <laughs> me true, how Toby. I, in fact, when I say sometimes people ask me uh, how I ended up doing what I do, that's how Matt and I met. So yeah, uh, um, but I, I think I've never had a clear sense of exactly where I'm heading, but I've always been as a as an adult clear on what was important to me in terms from a values perspective and mm. by being true to that in a sense the path has found me a little bit yeah Is that- yeah I think that's right and I mean I look at when I read stories about politicians who've always wanted to be the prime minister and have a pathway there I'm like oh my god that's and then Monique Ryan comes along <laughs> yeah, and-, and kicks you in the butt um yeah I just I mean I would find that too predictable and boring I kind of don't even if I walk to the train station every day I don't like to take the same route because you know life's too short to to be boring um so I think it, how cool is it though as well to have a job that is aligned with your values that doesn't feel like a job and I'm extremely lucky to be able to do that but it has been just following those ideals. What's interesting, I find interesting about my career, which is there's not that much interesting about it, but I've actually worked in government in the private sector and in the advocacy community sector. And I'm really lucky because I see it from those perspectives. I respect everyone in each of those areas and I think we're all part of creating change. No one's better than the other. I do love advocacy now and would find it hard to leave. But I've actually in my career gone through all of those angles and eventually found the place that probably resonates most with my values. So, you know, it's going to be hard to to move on from such a wonderful area. Are there people who stand out as having inspired you, particular individuals? Wow, good question. I, I learn a lot from people, but I'm also, and we were talking about this on the way here, Toby, that I love teams. I think Teams of people are what makes change and individuals, I'm not really into individualism, funny saying that as a CEO, but the whole team does the work. Um, Maybe that's what makes you a good CEO. (laughs) I don't know. But so actually I've learnt a lot of things from the leaders I've had and the mentors I've had and from people who have been environmentalists for many years. I always remember watching Bob Brown speak and... I just the kindness that he had about how he speak and the love for nature was really profound. But there's also things that I didn't resonate with, and so I sort of learn from from all these different different ways. But I, I kind of I've often thought about that: who are your big inspirations in life? To me, often it's the people that aren't known that you meet that are part of our community day cf 700,000 supporters you meet them and you just go oh my god a little kid was on a phone call i was a webinar i was on yesterday he's 11 years old and he was asking questions about how we get the new government to do things and he has this idea for a local campaign in his area and so i find inspiration in every day and in almost every person you meet the other thing i've learned is to be your own person you also learn things that you don't want to do from others I've had managers who manage in certain ways. I'm like, I really respect them, but I never want to do that part of how they manage. I don't think that's right. So taking the good and the bad and sort of figuring out who you are and just leaning into that, you know, that's how I've developed my own leadership. You talked about the distance you want to have from division, that you want to bring unity rather than division, and you also talked about teamwork. But when you're 
also advocating about something that's so important and you're so passionate about and you're leading an organisation and a team of people, how do you balance bringing the unity and the the broad church, for a better term, with um, the recent election and and what one team wasn't able to do in, in that case? But, um, you know, how do you ensure that that broad community of people feel heard and on the same page while and separating those differences away to just focus on that one really important cause. Yeah. I think that's an excellent question because I also believe very strongly in the power of leadership. I think we've had a dearth of that in this country and people are looking for it and in the election campaign we saw it but not necessarily from either of the major parties and people lent that way. You know, they went to the people who have something to say so I very, very strongly believe in that and I lead all the time in my role but also empower people to be the best they can be, whether that's staff or volunteers or the 700,000 supporters and that that's the team effort. So I feel you've got to try and get that balance right and that's just, I don't know how to explain how to get that balance right. You've just got to check the pulse every day of how you've affected everyone and take it from there, but be willing and bold and courageous enough to speak up for what needs to happen. So your question's about, in one way I hear it, about how do you balance the disruption that needs, disruption of business as usual, that's not good, and how do you balance that with the creation of what you want that is good? And ACF actually has a bit of an emerging theory of change around disrupt, create and activate, and we have to disrupt things that are very damaging and bad. And so you therefore have to be willing to speak up for those. And I find if you just do it in the kindest, <laughs> nicest way you can do, the real human way, you're not... So a great example is we have to shift from coal and gas to renewables at an amazingly fast pace now because unfortunately that's been ignored for, for 10 years. That doesn't mean coal and gas workers are bad people at all. It all communities, they actually have to be supported and cared for and they should be at the centre of this transition and empowered to speak up for what they want. But the thing that they work on is damaging to the world and the world is moving away from it. So they'll, they'll actually lose their livelihoods unless there's a transition. So you can speak up for the end of coal and gas and the transition to renewables, but I think it's really important to do it in a way that cares for the people whose jobs are going to change, whose mortgages are going to be affected, kids are going to be affected, and find a solution, create that solution that is good for people and for the planet. Uh, and I find if you can do the disruptive elements that way, you bring more people along with you because they can see themselves in the vision, the future. If people can't see themselves in your vision or your future, they're not going to speak up for it. Kelly, it's interesting. I'm wondering if you can help Matt and me solve an argument that Matt doesn't know we're having. <laughs> Is there a wager on it? Because, you know. And, um, well, no, so, well, I mean, now there could be. <laughs> uh, so on a few occasions, Matt and I have spoken about values. Uh, and, and Matt, correct me if I paraphrase you too incorrectly, but broadly uh, part of Matt's thinking linked to sort of why you set up moments and clarity and so forth is with all this division and uncertainty in the world, actually when people align around values, we can all come together and broadly speaking our values align. So that's the moment that I'm broadly kind of on board with where the argument that I haven't yet had with Matt but we're going to have it now through you is I agree that 
many people just want to do right by their families. They just want to make sure they've got a roof over their heads and enough food on the table. Those values are fundamental and aligned. But one person might say, and the best way to do that is by bringing together the community and making sure that everyone is well enough fed. And another goes, it's to get rid of all those thieving immigrants because they're taking our food. And so I think you can have some fundamental things that people align around while the values in terms of how you achieve them can be entirely poles apart. And so the question that emerges from that is when you think about uniting rather than dividing, you run a conservation and environmental organization. Not that many people get out of big guy bugger, I hate the environment, I just really want to ruin it. So on the one hand, our values are probably aligned. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but I don't want a tree next to my house. Have you seen what birds do to my car or whatever? So values, when you get right to the core, are we kind of all aligned or are we? Are there real divisions in society? Uh, well, I am not an expert but I have listened to the experts on this and there's been a whole lot of work done around the world about values of humans. So what are the universal values of humans? And the one that there are I think about six, I've actually got them on my wall at work because I look at them before I do a media interview because I want to tap into those values when I'm speaking because I want to speak to as many people as possible. And there are around six values and four of which progressives hold and and everyone holds all of them, but there's a couple that the progressives don't hold, apparently. But one that is very uniting is the idea of fairness, the value of fairness. And so in your example earlier, well, it wouldn't be fair to get an outcome by discriminating against people uh, for no justifiable reason. Um, and so that fairness is a very strong value that drives me because I th I th and drives a lot of people according to this evidence. And what we've actually done at ACF is um, I started eight years ago as a CEO. We had 80,000 supporters. We have 700,000 now and lots oh, wow. of active community groups. And people often say, and particularly in business, how did you get that growth? Through values, through communicating through values and tapping into pe what people deeply, deeply, deeply care about because your values are the most fundamental thing to you and then they drive your opinions, they drive your decisions and what you say. So they're the sort of most, as I said, fundamental thing. And there are a small amount of them that we hold. And so you, I think finding those that are really important to the majority of people is how I then would communicate. And then I wouldn't worry about the people that I'm never going to reach. There's still climate deniers and sceptics in this country. Some of them, you know, are elected to government. Not many of them anymore, though. And there's not many of them in the country. But I tell you what, I'm not going to waste any of my time trying to convince them. They're about 20% or less of the nation. It's not worth it because no. the majority is already convinced. But it's a really good question because we because the environment movement is, like all movements, is divided between the people who, you know, want to keep humans out of nature completely to uh, the people who say, let's shut, shut coal down straight away to the people who really want it done in the right way so it cares for workers, it cares for First Nations rights and you've got to bring everyone along and I just find that what's fair and what's the right thing to do 
it means you can have a really great conversation with people from across that spectrum. It's interesting. I'm even less of an expert than you on, on that question, but my mother uh, was a child psychologist and her part of her sort of areas of expertise was she's a social psychologist, so how do people come together? And um, part of her research uh, was looking at uh, she ran the local play group for the, and as an academic, but she took that on so she could kind of do the research. And it's just so consistent that children from a really early age have a profound sense of sharing and fairness. And so she was working with two and three-year-olds and, again, across demographics and whatever, but there is from a very early age. And um, I think that the evidence I've seen is values are set from from a very early age and they tend not to change too much, which I, I find interesting. I'm not, mm. I'd like to read more about that because it doesn't make intuitive sense to me necessarily. But as, as they would say, your values are your values, but how they manifest in your attitudes and what you speak and say, you can control and you can think about. Uh, just to reflect on, on, on the, the values comment, which I, I do, I, I really poured a lot of my thinking into, if only we could realise our values, realise that they're aligning, we could solve everything and people have been <laughs> trying to solve everything for a very long time and um, I don't know if things are getting that much better overall but but they might be. But I think that there is potentially this underlying idea of, of fairness that exists with, let's say, with everyone and maybe the, the bit that we, that maybe I can agree with you, Toby, is that, yes, fairness exists. It looks different in the way that we all um, portray it or where we direct our fairness. And, it, and maybe that's based on our experience. So it's unfair that I have to pay taxes, someone might say. And then another person says it's only fair that you pay your taxes. The value of fairness is there and then there's the the way that, that they embody that, what, what they sort of spruik and, and talk about. Is that simply based on education, experience? You know, how do we connect? Is there a way? Really, I mean, and it's sort of a reframing of your question anyway, Toby, but is there a way that we can say, yes, you believe in fairness, but the way that you're saying things are fair just isn't real? Is, is that fair on that person's opinion mm. and on their life? You know, um, even going back to something that's just happened now, listeners will be hearing this a couple of weeks later, but, you know, the, the shooting that happened in Texas, the, the horrible, horrible murder of children and teachers occurred and there's a discussion going around that I subscribe to which is end access to guns surely you know end uh, the access the unbridled access to these murderous horrible things surely and then I heard Ted Cruz speak um, today and Ted Cruz talks about the despicable behavior of Democrats and progressives that want to take your guns your rights your freedom they're using, once again, another horrible incident that he says that he cries about and whatever to take our guns. All they needed to do was lock the back door and, you know, not let the, the guy in. And there's 50% of the population <laughs> believe Ted Cruz and 50% of the people potentially, you know, believe in the end of guns. So what, you know, I'm sure Ted Cruz thinks he has good values and so do all those people. They care about the lives of kids. Lock the back door and put more security guards there with more guns versus let's just, you know, peel back some of these, you know, military-grade weapons that are in the hands of kids. You know, what do we do? <laughs> you know, that's – so th the values debate can go into every area, and I know this is a long-winded monologue here, um, but my question is to both of you, I guess, 
you know, is there a, a way that I can maybe and, and, and listeners that maybe think the same as I do about values, is there a way that we need to, to put the blinkers on and, and look at values in a, in a much more careful way or a more, you know, guided way rather than, you know, let's sing Kumbaya together because we all think fairness matters. I reckon, well, one, I don't think the US is a good example um, mm. for us. And I am interested. So we're doing this a couple of days now after the federal election, which showed that Australians are quite progressive on a number of issues, including climate change, First Nations rights, women's equality and the integrity of politics. So that example, one of politicians, you know, have really lost integrity, the the Ted Cruz example. And unfortunately in Australia we've seen that as well. And, And the Australian people said, no, we expect you to have that. So there's corruption of politics from the gun lobby. There's corruption of politics from the fossil fuel lobby. So I don't think that's really about values. But the example you gave when you talk to a person out who's in the community that likes their guns, I think that what we we do, and I experience this when I do media as well, people want the simple cut-through story of the day and it's not simple. That Life is complex. The transition to renewable energy is complex. Um, and I was watching the election coverage and they said, well, last election it was all about coal and this election it was all about climate. It's like, <laughs> bullshit. It wasn't all. It was hardly about coal the last election. Mm. These stories get told and they're not real. So I think that if we could spend more time within the community having conversations about where we differ, not telling someone what they should think but asking them why they think it and only with the people that you really feel you know, are willing to have that conversation. So I said earlier I'm not really interested in working with the deniers who have the information are just bullshitting, lying about it, not interested in that because you can't change their minds, but that's such a tiny proportion. And I think in guns it's probably very similar. But there are real people who truly have ideas and ideologies that are based on their values that we could have good conversations with. And we've just done that up in Queensland after the 2019 election that apparently was all about coal. We at ACF were sick and tired of politicians like Matt Canavan talking about coal all the time and gas and representing his community when he's leading them to a cliff because the world is moving away from this stuff and they're going to lose their livelihoods and job and you're lying to them about it. We got sick of that. So we decided to invest in a community program in Gladstone where a local Gladstone person led conversations in the community about climate change and what the world's doing and what would you like for your future. And a poll that we did twice in the last year showed that in every single electorate in Australia, but including the electorate of Flynn, which Gladstone sits in, there's more support for renewables than coal and gas. And then the election result had a huge swing away from the incumbent supporter of coal and gas. So we had a conversation with that community. An environment group normally is too afraid to go up into coal country like that. And to be honest, it would have been better if someone else had done it, but no one else was willing to do it. So we did and had the conversation and it's starting to lead to change. But it's listening to those affected people, truly listening, and then figuring out, well, how can we meet all of our needs? And sometimes it's possible to achieve that, I reckon, on guns. And the Middle East seems to be very difficult. Although there is a small parallel, and I think I agree with you, Kelly, as uh, someone with... My wife never likes me saying publicly that I'm American. She thinks that the 
authorities are going to come after me. But anyway, uh, if the authorities are listening, there's no reason to come after me, so I'm happy to say it on air. But, um, you know, in, in the U.S. context, uh, so sorry, the point that I agree with is I think the U.S. is deeply troubling on various levels. It's so aspirational and impressive on, so, on some and so gut-wrenchingly horrendous on others. And thus I don't think it's necessarily a great comparison for us in Australia. But a bit like your Gladstone example, actually about 90% of Americans do believe there should be some form of checks before handing out guns. And yet the, and this is then, so for another podcast, you know, what is happening to democracy and the role of uh, vested interests, etc. because it is completely skewing uh, the way that politicians are willing to pick that up. Yeah, my, my connection with that is, the, the once again, the coal connection. There is a, a want to deal with climate change and the argument in Australia is by Matt Canavan and co is they're going to, you know, you're going to have a horrible, horrible life because of these people. There's no way you can transition. There's no, there's no other job for you and this is the only thing for you in a way. And um, that fear especially in, in uncertain times that we're, we're in really, will we'll stop people from acting at times. And I think it's almost the same in the US right now. There's a lot of distrust in government and things like that. The 90% of people that do want more action think, yeah, keen to do that, but they're saying that people actually do trust in, in politics for some unknown reason they trust them, but they do believe that we give them this, they'll take, the next step is to take our guns away completely, you know, all of us law-abiding citizens and things. And I agree it's a bad decision. A lot of my friends talk to me about American politics constantly when I'm talking about Australian politics or just, you know, global global issues and they constantly bring up the US and I try and say it's an outlier really. It's the it's the superpower of the world in a way but it is it is an outlier in, in the way that we think and how extremely polarised they are and I don't think we are I finally have hope the election just just uh, over the weekend showed me that giving away my cards a little bit that there is hope for Australia and our community that my fear for the last 10 years was we may never get a progressive government in back because people are so fearful about their own maybe self-interest you know because of fear and the stories they've been told and the media and and um I'm much more hopeful. So maybe that's where I can veer off and um, and potentially, you know, ask you, Kelly, right now, 2022, I was going to say COVID's over, but it seems like it's worse than it has been in Australia right now. But what, what, make, what gives you hope? What makes you hopeful in May 2022? Well, great time to ask <laughs> uh, post last weekend, which is what I thought might happen. Because I didn't, I thought the independents would do well. I didn't know about the Greens. That was a surprise to me. It was great. But I'm hopeful because the Australian people have shown themselves to not accept the BS of governments that aren't willing to do the hard work and the big problems that we have in solving them and the transformations we need to make. And therefore, they're sort of more progressive than the government of the day and the new government which opens up the ground for the new government to go further than where they have been and, and I think that will they'll take some time to do that and I'm okay with giving them a little bit of time to do that. Uh, there's a lot of talk about climate targets at the moment and should the Labor Party increase their climate targets. Our, our take is just meet and beat them. Just meet and beat them. 
an increase a bit later, but I don't want to have a year's worth of argument about a number. I want you to get on with the action, get the, the electric vehicles on the ground, start deploying renewable energy at huge scale. So it's the parliament of Australia that gives me hope, but it's the actual people behind electing that parliament. And other shifts have happened too. So the Business Council of Australia in 2019 was advocating against a 45% emissions reduction target. Now they're advocating for a target that's higher than the Labor government. And so the business community have really shifted because the markets have shifted. So the momentum is there and that's what tipping points are. I worry a little, I wonder how firm that is and if the coalition go further to the right, I I hope that the Australian community will call that out as BS. You got it wrong, guys. You haven't learnt from this election. We've, we, about six years ago at ACF, had a strategy for a race to the top on climate change in Australian politics and uh, we were one election off. Happened in 2022, not 2019, like we were working for and hoping. And so it's the Australian people, as always. It's the democracy. I think it would be great for you to have a podcast on democracy. Got a great suggestion for who that could be. But um, the... You know, we talked earlier about the politics of the US is polluted by the gun lobby. In in Australia, it's definitely polluted by the coal and gas lobby. They're not just polluting our atmosphere. But Australians aren't going to put up with that, and that gives me tremendous hope. Uh, But we have to turn that hope into action. That's really important. We don't sit there and buy a lottery ticket and hope that we win or that climate action is taken. We get in there. We work really hard. We've already been working with the incoming government about all the policies they could put in place. Um, We'll all be activating the community to really empower the government to do as much as they can. Uh, We'll continue the work in the coal regions that we're doing because it's the work kind of starts now. We've got the hope, but if you don't act, the hope's not going to go anywhere. Now, I know that you kind of turned this around and you got your moment of clarity and right at the beginning, Kelly. <laughs> I know. But as, as the clock runs out, sadly, on our time for this interview, it's been a really rich conversation and we've covered uh, quite a right, wide range of things. But going back to you, it's really clear to hear your passion. It's great to hear how you, I, I love that, your, your framing around uniting rather than dividing. And within all of this, though, there is that moment when you said, I know there was a thing as, as a younger child, and then you kind of touched on what you studied at university, but at some point you said, I'm not going to be a consultant. I'm going to be in advocacy. Mm. And what or when was that moment of clarity? Well, it was the time when I decided I would join the environment movement was when I was in the office of uh, the CEO of Valley Water at the time and I was running a program for them, Melbourne's 50-year water planning, fun to do, uh, and uh, we, we did huge transformational planning in that. But I was trying to figure out my next move and we're talking to him about it. And we were a little bit frustrated with the environment movement because they were really bagging the part of the strategy, the water strategy, that returned a lot of water to the river, but it was imperfect amount. There were scientific reasons why it was hard to return more water. Well, not scientific, flooding reasons. You can you can flood Q if you want, but it's probably not a good idea. So um, you have to meet the environmental needs other in other ways. And I, I got really frustrated that I felt the ideology of the environment was getting in the way of an actual good environmental outcome. I'm a big believer, by the way, in as much change as you can get as fast as you can get. I don't like incrementalism. Mm -hmm. It is generally how change happens. 
Um, but I also think there's moments when you can get a huge change. And that was a big return of a lot of water to the Yarra to clean, clean it up and make it healthy and get all the little fishies to be able to okay. breed and the important things. And so we, we made that decision to say, okay, I'm frustrated about this. I think I would do it differently. Uh, and then they needed a new leader of one of the environment groups. So I put my hand up and went into the interview and said, I'd probably do it differently though. And this is the uniting thing I think you need to do. I think you need to have tenfold supporters and they need to come from all different walks of life. And uh, that wasn't the ACF role, that was one before, but I did the same pitch to the ACF role. And both times the recruiters, the board decided they did want change and um, we created that. And when I finish, I will be most proud of bringing diversity of ideas, of backgrounds and culture, um, lots of more younger people uh, into the environment movement. Um, we're not diverse in other ways yet, uh, but we are working on that. But 700,000, I'm pretty happy with that. And that they are young and old. And do you know, ACF has more people living in the regions that are our supporters than Australian percentage of people living in the regions, right? So we are not your inner city latte sippers, although I live in the inner city and I like a cappuccino. Um, and I love that. I'm really excited by that. But the moment was, yeah, in someone's office having a conversation out of frustration and deciding to do something about it rather than just lobbying stones. To finish, there's a lot of listeners that are probably having a moment of clarity of their own right now or... or feeling frustrated and wanting to to make a change, what can people do if they have heard what you said today and decide they want to be a part of that change and that mission? What, what can they do right now? One of, the, one of the big things you can do is join a group that is your purpose. So if it's environment, you can join ACF, you can join Greenpeace, you can do a WWF, you should join the one that your heart belongs to. So if you love locking on and a bit of disruption, probably don't join ACF but another one. Um, it just depends on what your your values are. Uh, and you, might, you may have a whole different passion other than the environment. But if you join a group, then you're joining with a lot of other people who are like you. The worst thing you, t- you can do is what governments tell you to do and what businesses tell you to do a lot of the time, which is, well, just recycle more or buy green electricity. Of course, those things are important. But your little one contribution will be good but tiny. Uh, you can make, you can change how you can buy renewable electricity yourself, or you can join a group and change how energy is created in Australia um, to make it one hundred percent renewable across the whole nation. So that's what I would recommend. And we are told all the time just to do those little individual things, but that's a strategy by the people who don't want change. Uh, so yeah, come along and join, uh, and it can be in lots of different ways. If you're busy then you can get involved in the really easy actions. Um, there might be petitions. It might be putting a Climate Action Now sign on your front fence, which 150,000 people did in this election. It could be easy things or it could be really deep things like getting involved in a community group and having a relationship with your local MP or your local bank if you want to shift what's being funded. But join a group. Love it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So you guys will be signing up tomorrow. Excellent. Yes. That's assuming we're not Yeah, I know. I was about to say, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure about you, Toby. But just met Matthew today, so I'll send you the details I mean. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, that's been fabulous. Thanks so much for your time and really, really insightful uh, recommendations at the end as well. Welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues, and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.